This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global CIO at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run, and the sixth edition is available wherever books are sold, so get a copy. Uh, please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree, and discussion is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to go deep into the economy, uh, how it works, and and some thoughts on where things are going. Uh, Professor, though, we're going to kick it off with you on some your your current reads of all the data coming out. We've got a lot of data that's coming out this week, so curious to hear your latest views on the markets. Well, I'll have to say that I am very surprised on how tight the labor markets have maintained themselves, uh, and that is causing me to shift uh, my expectations on the Fed's fund rate path. Um, uh, let, let me let me review. Uh, I don't think anyone thought the, the, the jobs market was going to be so tight. <laughs> uh, January might be an anomaly, but when I look at initial uh, claims, still extremely tight. Um, the real economic data has been slightly on the soft side, but not terribly so. It looks like GDP is coming in this quarter at around 2%. When you look at the sensitive commodity indexes, they have stabilized at a low level. Um, the, the Bloomberg Commodity Index and all the rest, they are not plunging anymore. Uh, we actually had a slight up tick in uh, the apartment list uh, rental index for the month of February. Still quite a few declines late last year. Case Shiller declined for the sixth time in a row, but the declines are not accelerating. Um, we also, by the way, saw the money supply, which I thought was going to decline in, in uh, the, um, uh, uh, the month of December, actually uh, stabilize also. Um, well, what does this what does this all mean? Um, it means the Fed is definitely going to go up again. The question now is twenty five or fifty basis points, and it is going to depend quite a bit on uh, Friday's employment report. Early expectation is two hundred thousand. Um, uh, if it gets in hotter than that, I'll tell you, those hawks will be calling for 50. Um, you're not going to get a pause unless it gets zero or negative. And that doesn't look like the case, given what I see in initial claims. Let me also say the following. My computation is that the uh, yield curve is now expecting four 25 basis point increases uh, through uh, the month of October, further than what we have today. Four. Uh, it's priced in at least one to two more as a result of the tight data since uh, we got that uh, January labor market uh, report. So four, you know, one whole uh, hundred basis points is, is uh, put in. I think that would be too much. However, Looking at the strength of the economy, um, it's not doesn't look like that increase would be as damaging as I certainly have feared last fall when everything was plunging, commodity prices, home prices, uh, and, and everything else. So I'm more sanguine about the Fed's increasing in rates, and I'm certainly more sanguine about the economy and uh, the fact that a recession I think now is certainly less likely than it looked uh, four or five months ago. Not out of the, not out of the realm, but uh, certainly in looking at the data, um, uh, uh, the economy seems to be withstanding these higher rates better than I anticipated. 
Our guest today is going to go into a view that the higher rates have been stimulative to the economy. How do you respond to that kind of concern? Hey, people had fixed mortgages. We're not having that. But now we all, 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 if you have assets earning a lot more, maybe you're going to spend some of those, those uh, that extra inter- interest income you're getting. Uh, it is increased interest income. Um, but borrowing costs historically have been more important. Uh, take a, take, let's take a look at the mortgage rate. Uh, it has gone up 75 basis points over the last five weeks. It's, it's over 7% again. A lot of people talked about the revival, and we did see a little bit of a revival in January in, in the home sector, which is a real important sector. Um, but that was when mortgage rates were back down to six. Now they're over seven. I can't see that as favorable to spending uh, in in the market. Uh, you know, in other words, interest income and interest costs are not di- directly a wash um, because firms will not enta- undertake capital expenditures if their hurdle rate on return is too high. Can they make up the cost of capital both on bonds and can they make it up on the cost of stocks? If the economy is growing slowly and the Fed keeps on raising rates, they're going to say, this project does not pay. A homeowner is going to say, you know, my, my income is not growing fast enough, you know, with GDP growing at 2% and wages barely keeping up with inflation to afford a 7% plus mortgage rate. So I have to say that uh, I, you know, higher interest rates is still net um, restrictive on the economy. Yes, it does increase interest income, but, but l- let me also tell you that if you're, you've got an account in the bank, particularly a savings account, checking account, what else, your interest rates have maybe gone up to about a half a percent or not much more. CDs are a little bit better, but don't forget, you've fallen way behind inflation over the last two years on your fixed income uh, uh, portfolio. So I'm going to take, I I will disagree with that uh, unorthodox view uh, that higher interest rates are uh, going to be a stimulant of the economy, although I've been one of the people to say, don't just look at interest rates, also look at the money supply. And as I said, I was very pleased with the last report. We got at least the stability of that and not a continued fall as we did last year. Where, where do you see when the declining money supply that we've had, where do you see that money going? Is it just going to the treasuries in this sense or what else well, do you see the money supply? it's not just going. I got questions on that. Don't, don't forget, um, what, what really declines the money supply um, is a contraction of the loan portfolio of the banks, their liab, uh, their, their assets. Then they'll contract their liabilities. In other words, people will come and say, I, should I take out a $10,000 home improvement loan? Um, and what the d- bank does is write up $10,000 of deposits for them. If, if the consumer says, I can't afford that, the rate's too high, I'm pessimistic. And by the way, those, uh, you know, just mentioned the universe, the conference board numbers that came out on Tuesday were not really all that great in terms of uh, future confidence on the economy really did fall. I'm not going to take out that loan. And that money supply is not going to get there. When when you buy treasuries, you're giving the money to the government, which is still (laughs) uh, uh, still going to spend it. It still has a deficit. So that money goes back into the economy uh, right away. So you don't really get rid of the money by switching from that bank account. You only really get rid of money by people not taking out loans or businesses not taking out loans uh, to finance uh, 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 growth or uh, finance capital expenditures. Well, very good. Professor, just wrapping up the week, any, as you think through this now, tighter Fed, how does that impact equities, you think, for the remainder of the year? Well, the the flip side of the tighter Fed is less probability of a recession, better earnings. I think the 220 that we see there on earnings uh, could even be conservative for the year. Um, And and by the way, we're under 18 times that 220 uh, as we speak. And as I've said, uh, you know, I think 20, uh, uh, 20 P.E. is a good P.E. or is like 17.8 now. I do not think overvalued. I think undervalued. I'm still sticking 
with my 10 to 15% equity returns for this year. Well, very good to hear from you. Thanks uh, for taking the time. Uh, we'll talk to you again uh, next Employment Friday. Yeah, a real important Friday uh, next week. Thank you. Thanks, Professor. Okay, we are going to turn our conversation to our guest for the remainder of the program. We're going to be talking with Warren Mosler, who is the president of Valence Company, Inc., uh, and also one of the original pioneers and thought leaders of the theory that's now being referred to as modern monetary theory. He's the author of a few books, uh, that the most recent of which was Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy. That lays out a lot of interesting ideas in this. Warren Mosler, welcome to Behind the Markets. Uh, thank you. Good to be here. Let's talk a little bit about how you came to the original ideas in, in modern monetary theory. I am traveling in, in uh, Europe this week. I just visited Italy and Milan. We talked a lot about interest rates. That's one of the yeah. stories you tell in the book is your Italian epiphany. I uh, maybe want to yeah. draw into that story a little bit, but um, give us where you, there's a lot of history for how you were trading bonds and all sorts of things that gave you some of these original ideas, but maybe tell yeah. a l- little anecdote for yourself of uh, how you came to these ideas. So the, they came over a period of time. I was on the money desk at Bankers Trust. We're a primary dealer. I was in sales and trading of Ginny Mesa-Kirby's and worked with the other bond traders and money traders. And so I got to know Fed operations and how the debits and credits worked, which, uh, and so it developed over time. And I won't go into too much detail on those ideas, but by the time the 90s came along, the early 90s, there was a specific situation in the marketplace. Uh, I was a fund manager at the time, fixed income, zero duration market neutral fund. It was a space I'd kind of invented, I think. And uh, Italian bonds yielded something like 12% in lira. And you could borrow lira at 10% to buy them from the Italian banking system. So it was a free, it was 2% free money in lira. And even if the currency went down, you're still making your lira profit. You just get a few less dollars for it. But, uh, so there wasn't any currency risk. Yet no one would do it, or the spread was that wide because of fears of default. And so that gave me reason to start thinking about why there may or may not be a, fall, a default in Italy at the time. And, uh, and with the idea, if you could come up with an understanding why there would not be a default, there's a lot of money to be made for the investors. So uh, I was talking uh, with my research uh, guy, Tom Schilke, one day about this, and it just dawned on me. I said, look, Tom, if the uh, Treasury issues securities, if we buy securities from the Treasury or if we buy securities from the Fed, it makes absolutely no difference to us in the private sector. Okay, Uh, either way, we... The money goes to the same place and we wind up owning the exact same thing. So if it doesn't make any difference to us, it can't be any difference. You know, the only difference can be how they're accounting for it on their side of the ledger. It has to be all the same thing. So it's either, like they say, it's fiscal where the treasury is borrowing to fund expenditures or it's monetary where the Fed is borrowing at that point in time to support interest rates at their target level and uh, through what's called reserve drain, where they would have excess reserves from time to time and or to prevent having excess reserves, they might sell securities, put a stop on the sale so that they, they can set the overnight rate. And I said, obviously, it's all monetary. Obviously, the whole thing is just a big reserve trade. You know, they, they're going through the motions the Treasury is of selling securities to fund expenditures, but it can't be the case. It has to all be a reserve trade. And that, that was the breakthrough. And that was why Italy went to fall, because the reason governments with their own currency sell securities is not to fund expenditures, it's to support interest rates, depending on their interest rate policy. It's all monetary. And uh, with that breakthrough, you know, the, the rest followed. Now, that's a little bit technical, uh, but it's, it's, it's about sequence. Yeah, it's about sequence. So what, what you get from that, what immediately came out of that conversation was the sequence. If you look op- operationally at the government, Everybody in Congress thinks they have to get the money to be able to spend it. So they have to tax to get the money, the dollars to be able to spend. And what they don't tax, if they want to spend more than that, 
they have to go borrow it from the likes of China, leave the debt to our grandchildren, and the whole thing we used to hear all the time, which thanks to modern monetary theory, you don't hear much of it anymore. Okay, so that was the sequence. And that sequence is still pretty well embedded in a lot of people uh, in Congress and certainly all the academic models, that the first thing that happens is the money has to come in before you can spend it. Uh, what you know, we recognized at the time, what I recognized at the time out of that conversation was that, in fact, the funds to pay taxes, the funds to buy government bonds come from the government. They don't come from anywhere else. You have to get your account credited at the Fed before they can, you know, as payment before they can debit it to pay taxes. Okay, so, and, you know, any money that's used to pay taxes that doesn't come from the government is called counterfeit. That's why you have rules against counterfeit. It all has to come from the government. That's how it works. Now, people will say it comes from the banks and whatnot, which is true. But they're the, in this case, they're acting as agents for the government. And I won't get into the details of how that's the case, but it's, it's obviously the case when you understand the monetary system. So all the funds to pay taxes come from the government, and it's through its agents. The congressmen themselves don't personally spend the money. They've got the Federal Reserve. They've got Treasury. They've got all this complex institutional arrangement. Okay, and so what we have is the government spends first crediting accounts at the Fed, and then it debits accounts for payments of taxes. Okay, and if there's any, if there are any funds left over, those are the funds it debits to buy uh, to sell government securities. And so, for example, the government might spend five trillion dollars in the course of the year. They do that by crediting accounts at at the central bank, they'll credit the account of JP Morgan or Bank of America or whatever for whoever the people are who are getting the money. And then taxes will get paid and they'll debit the accounts for three trillion. So the balances go from five to three. And then that last two trillion is used to buy government securities. That's called a reserve trade, where it's just uh, balances in reserve accounts that get transferred to balances and securities accounts. And so those reserves go down. They, Technically, the word inside is called reserve drain. Now, the, the way they say this, and by the way, everybody in the Fed knows this. Everybody in every central bank I've ever visited know it. It's their job. And the way they say it is, you can't do a reserve drain without a prior reserve ad. You have to do a reserve ad first, and then you can do a reserve drain. So you used to see, uh, before we had QE and excess reserves, it was very obvious, on days where the banks had to make payments to the government for to buy securities, for example, the Fed would be in doing repos, which is buying things from the banks to add the money so that they could then use them to buy the securities from the government because they aren't there. Okay, so they have to do a reserve ad first, put the money in the system before the system can pay it back to the Fed. All right, and so that was the origins of the understandings that have all evolved into what's been popularized as modern monetary theory, that sequence that yep. government spends first. So if you're spending first by crediting accounts at the Fed, where, where does the idea of solvency or default come in? It's just not applicable to the system. There's a few places I want to drill. There's a lot of places we could yeah. drill more into, yeah. but let's let's go yeah. to some of the questions on the, well, let, let's keep with Italy for a moment. I'm still in, in, yeah, in yeah, Europe. Yeah, yeah. And you, the, the situation that you had when you came up with the idea is not far from where yields are today. You look at German boons yeah. versus Italian uh, BTPs now, the yeah. it's basically a two percent spread again. Should people be doing that same shorting boons and buying Italian bond trade today? Is the politics yeah. different today versus it was? What do you think? Well, if they were bonds from the European Central Bank that you could buy, sure, not a problem. Because what Europe did was turn themselves into something more like the United States. So each individual country, like Italy and Germany and France, became a state like. New York, Massachusetts, and California. And like our states, uh, you know, they, they can run out of money and they have to get money into their accounts first before they can spend it, okay? You and I are all currency users. We have to get the dollars to be able to spend them. We don't spend first. Only the central bank spends first, okay? It has to spend first before any money can come, before money can, you know, can accept payments, okay? And so, Italy went from having its lira and its own central bank to having the euro. And now it's just like a U.S. state where, yes, it can run out. And, and right now, um, what's supporting all these states, you know, they're, they're, country, they're nations, but they're in a position of U.S. states, uh, and keeping them from keeping, allowing them to continue to get paid is they have an implied guarantee from the central bank. 
Okay, the central bank has said back in 2012, they said, we will do what it takes to prevent default, which means anybody who lends you money is going to get paid back. And without that guarantee, they, they're toast. You know, they, they can't operate in the euro system. And that's why they did it, because going into 2012, they were on the verge of default and collapse because they couldn't handle their the payment system. And uh, if you look at the size of the debts of the U.S. states today, they're maybe 5 or 10% of their GDP. And, and sometimes they get into trouble. The European states waltzed into monetary union with 100% debt to GDPs and like crazy numbers that when you don't have your own central bank, it's, it's totally unsustainable. And so, you know, they solved that by having the uh, central bank guarantee. So you can imagine, you know, you could get yourself in trouble with your own credit cards. But if, if the Federal Reserve said they would guarantee all your debt, you know, you, you don't have a problem anymore. You can keep going as long as they do that. Well, the problem today is that the the central bank uses that leverage over these countries to try and uh, maintain. Germans may not approve it. The Germans may yeah. not approve the Italian spending. Is what you're saying? Right, right. The central bank says if you violate what we say, we're going to pull the guarantee. But that's the implied threat. So when you see Italy running a deficit that's higher than they're supposed to, everybody worries that they're going to pull the guarantee and the debt's going to be worthless. And so you see the spreads widening. So what those spreads are reflecting is the risk of loss of the guarantee by the European Central Bank. And you can argue that it's too high or too low and they're not pricing the risk properly, fine. But that is what they're pricing. They're pricing the risk of not being supported by the Central Bank. It's very interesting as these spreads widened uh, at the yeah. moment. Um, yeah. if, if, let's come back to the U.S. Uh, where we, we do have issues with our debt ceiling. It's a discussion all yeah. the time. And it's sort of like a political will. You, you talk about a concept that you're, the, the government checks won't bounce, but we might try to force them to bounce. Is that what the Republicans yeah. are saying right now, that we, we are going to force our checks well, to bounce? Well, we always have the ability to pay. We just instruct the Federal Reserve to credit the account and it's paid. And there's no numerical limit on that. They can put any money number in any account that they want to. That's, you know, you know, operationally, there's no limit on that. But we have a willingness to pay. So, for example, we might uh, have a willingness to spend $900 billion a year on the military, you know, not a trillion and not $800 billion. So we express our willingness to pay with our budgeting and things like that. And what happens is we approve the spending, and then we have what's called the debt ceiling, which limits, which is a limit on uh, the difference between spending and taxing, right? And uh, which we call borrowing, which we'll get into the semantics. But so we have a limit on government borrowing, which is an expression of Congress's willingness to pay. So if Congress says, OK, we approved all this spending, but we're not willing to go the last step to approve payment, then we don't pay. And there's a default. Uh, and um, so, for example, the only country I found that actually meaningfully defaulted on, a, uh, on their debt uh, was, you know, when it wasn't like guaranteed by gold conversion or anything like that, but just pure nominal debt. It was Japan in 1943 owed yen to the United States and didn't pay it. Okay, well, they had the ability to credit her account, but they just said, no, we're not going to do it. And so you have to, and, and the rating agencies separate the ability to pay from the willingness to pay. When they give you a credit rating, they're looking at both of those. So sometimes when they downgrade a country, it's not downgraded on their ability to pay, but on their willingness to pay. And, and that's the distinction we make, that there is no issue of ability to pay uh, for the United States. Okay, now there's a huge risk here that nobody's talking about if the debt ceiling isn't increased. Would you like me to get into that? Yes, I mean, that's what that's, that's going to be yeah. a key you know, issue for the markets this year. Yeah, right. So the, the markets aren't focusing on the risk I'm talking about. Their risk is, oh, if the U.S. credit rating drops and we can't borrow and Rates might go up and all this nonsense. And, 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 and uh, people don't get paid. The economy could go into a slowdown. You know, and that's all true. Okay, there might be a big slowdown if people don't get paid. In fact, there will be. But there's a greater risk. And that is we go down into an immediate downward spiral. I'll try and describe it. If we hit the debt ceiling where we cannot make payments to, let's say, Social Security, that's fine. And maybe we don't pay $100 billion of Social Security. But some portion of that $100 billion would have been used to pay taxes, maybe $25 billion. 
Okay, so now tax revenues fell as well. So when we cut spending, the government's also cutting its tax revenues. But when it cuts tax revenues, it has to cut spending more under this debt ceiling thing. Well, that cuts tax revenues more, so it has to cut spending more. So we get into this downward spiral iteration that in a very short period of time can get you very close to zero because of this automatic tumbling effect or, you know, of spending cuts causing revenue to fall. It's not that the spending cuts go and we lose out and then you calculate the effect. You have to calculate the knock-on effects of lost revenue, lost spending, lost revenue, lost spending. And it ripples. And and it's, it's worse than just a simple iteration. It goes down very, very quickly. We could lose 50% of GDP in two weeks or something like that. Not just people waiting for their money. I'm talking about a, a total collapse because of this debt ceiling thing. And that is not in the markets. And it probably won't get priced into the markets. And it probably won't happen. It's most likely they will pass this thing and move on like they've done you know, forever. They've always done that. Because they've already approved the spending. It doesn't. It, it's not any new spending that they have to approve with the debt ceiling. It's just kind of an extortion thing to get um, to get something done. It, feel, it feels like the Republicans will get a lot of the blame at the very end of the day. Um, and and you'd say the Democrats aren't going to do anything until because they know the Republicans are going to get the blame. But do, do you see do you see the politics today setting up in a way where you have a few people who could wield this this sort of crazy stance? You know, it's always possible. I, I, I can't I can't address that any better than the next guy. Yeah. Yeah. Through the rest of the economy today, um, yeah. we, we've had very high inflation. Interest rates from the Fed are rising you know, considerably. Yeah. You've been commenting. I, I've seen some of your comments on Twitter about what you see the impacts of interest rates are. Maybe talk through where you see the mainstream yeah. economists go versus your view of what the interest rates are doing for the economy. Yeah, so we had had a, a lot of deficit spending for COVID got up to maybe 15% plus of GDP, big number. But then as people went back to work, it fell off quickly because it was counter-cyclical, it was unemployment compensation and whatnot. And it dropped precipitously to, and it's hard for me to get the month-to-month numbers and what it got to, but to something like 4% of GDP, 3% down from 15. And so it's a big reversal of that spending that was out there. And we saw the economy sort of collapsing accordingly, you know, last um, at the end of 2021, going into 2022, and we saw some negative GDP, very close to zero, but negative. And, and I know a lot of it was inventory, but the whole thing was decelerating. You know, all the indicators were decelerating. Uh, and then the deficit spending picked up again. And now it's back to, I don't know exactly what it is now. It's probably six or seven percent of GDP. I, I look; I, nobody reports on that. I see the monthly numbers are double last year's deficits, and we were about four percent for last year. And it's 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 really the trend, the more recent trend, and not the year over year that matters. And I, I just don't have the numbers to get it, but it's probably gone up to six, seven, eight percent of GDP. And the economy's come back, and it's been reasonably strong. It's been solid. We've had two and a half percent type of. GDP real growth, which is very good in this environment, and growing. We've seen 500,000 new jobs last month, and uh, and I know there are weather adjustments of 100,000, but still strong numbers. And um, you know, nobody wants to work. Well, how are we getting 500,000 new jobs? <laughs> Somebody wants to work, right? And uh, we saw even the uh, job openings go up. They started to drop and they poked back up. I don't think they stay there, but they went up. You know, and. You know, unemployment's at a 50-year low, and I know they don't measure it, but it's still all the indicators are very strong. And now there's concern the Fed's going to have to go 50 instead of 25 at the next meeting because things have been that strong. And if you look at the composition of the deficit spending, something like 4% of it is an interest expense because the Fed's raised rates. And what's happening is these interest expense, interest, these rate hikes uh, immediately cause an increase in treasury interest expense and the Fed's interest expense on the excess reserves and RRP that it's holding because of QE. So looking at government as a total, the total interest expense of government goes up, you know, some of it's long-term, but effectively one to one uh, with the uh, interest rate. So if the rates go up 1%, you get an increase of 
spending for interest of about 1% of GDP. Now, it's a little less because of duration, but it, it, it gets there. You know, it's, it's uh, present value and other technicality you know, of, of analysis. But it, it's not wrong to think of it as increasing at about one-to-one. And not all of it gets spent, of course, but it, maybe none of it gets spent. But if you look at what the economy is doing, which is showing the kind of strength that you would expect with a six, seven, eight percent deficit, uh, a lot of it's getting spent somehow, one way or another. Corporate earnings are holding up. Everything's surprising on the upside. Uh, the forecasts are terrible because they all have in their forecast that the high interest rates are going to cause a recession, so which never happens because the high interest rates are actually supporting the economy. Now, a few years ago, I had an interesting conversation with an economist named Paul Krugman, you might know. And we were talking about unemployment and the idea that you could use deficit spending to continue full employment. And he said, well, you can't do that. He says, because if you if the deficit gets high enough, where the debt to GDP gets high enough, uh, you know, then the Fed can't raise rates to fight inflation anymore. Because when you raise rates with the debt that high, the interest expense will be so high that it'll be inflationary. And it will add to demand to keep the economy going. Now, back then, the debt to GDP was 50 or 60 percent. And the debt to GDP held by the public was about 35. The rest was like Social Security Administration, things that don't really count. Today, it's up to 120 because of COVID. And uh, it's about 100 uh, percent if you look at debt held by the public, maybe 105. So it's tripled. The, the impact of the on the economy of raising rates has tripled what it was back then. Now, back then, I was saying, Paul, yeah, I agree with you that if the debt to GDP is high enough, the interest expense then overwhelms the other factors of rate increases. Yes, some people, there's winners and losers, borrowers lose, savers win, maybe the borrowers lose more than the savers spend, you know, you know, because there's different propensities, people have behaviors. But, you know, if the interest rate, the debt to GDP is high enough. The added interest expense from the government payments of interest overwhelms all that. You know, that's the rising tide that lifts all boats. You have winners and losers, but at the macro level overall, you know, the, the, the rate increases are not um, deflationary. They don't slow anything down. They're now inflationary because of the extra government's deficit spending. You know, deficit spending goes up. The economy does better. And I said, look, Paul, I agree with you, but I think we're already at that point. Okay. And so, uh, we don't lose anything by sustaining full employment. We don't have that tool anyway. Debt to GDP is already plenty high for that. That was several years ago. Well, now it's three times higher. And if you look back then when uh, Chairman Bernanke cut interest rates, 500 basis points, um, the economy didn't do a lot better. Japan was zero rates when they cut rates. These rate cuts, the European rate cuts, they did not help the economies. And the reason is because they cut interest expense. Okay, government interest expense fell $400 billion for the rate. And so government, so interest income for the economy dropped $400 billion. That's not stimulus. That's, that's uh, the opposite. That's taking away income when you cut rates. And now when we're raising rates with the debt to GDP three times higher, we're just piling on. We're flooding the economy with interest income. So here we are. And what I'll tell you flat out is, looks to me, the data is screaming at me that the Fed has it backwards. Okay. As they raise rates to fight inflation, they're making the economy stronger. They're causing inflation to linger at higher levels than otherwise, because we've had some cyclical reasons for inflation to come down, and now it may even be creeping up again. And so they see that and raise rates again. That causes the strength to continue. That causes the price pressures to continue. They raise rates again. There's no end to it. When you've got it backwards, you're just like chasing your tail. And I don't know how that ends. Your point on the winners and losers is very interesting because you had yeah. a lot of people yeah. refinance their mortgages. They locked in the ultimately low rates. I mean, there's not a sure. lot of fit floating rate mortgages in the U.S., a lot of fixed rate mortgages. So you have right. and the aging of the population, the demographics would say, hey, there's a lot of people who might spend some of that income more. What And I, you say that the the losers are people who are newly buying a house. That's clearly a loser. The people yeah. who are trying to take loans, new businesses, the and I guess the refinancing, it, it's sort of like the flow of new pe people who need to refinance debt or need to take out new loans. And 
and what the aggregate stock of refinancing is versus just the immediate interest expense or interest income that people are getting from these higher rates. That That's sort of the calculus yeah. in your mind of the winners and losers. Yeah. Now, if you look at consumer debt, it's been going up. Real estate debt, bank loans for real estate have been going, the outstanding portfolios have been going straight up since the rate hikes. So the, the you know, if you go into the bank for a loan, let's say you're the economy, you say, okay, I'd like to borrow some money. And then the guy looks at your statement. He says, well, you know, rates are up, so your payment's going to be higher. So that makes it more difficult. But I see your income's way up. Okay. Which is more important to the income and your ability to make the payments. And so 500,000 new jobs, people have incomes, you know, they buy a car, they have money for a down payment, they borrow money to buy the car, loans go up. And, and that increase in that car loan is actually also accounted for as a drop in savings because now your savings is down by, I don't know, if you buy a $30,000 car and you put $10,000 down, $20,000 loan, your savings just drop by 20,000, you know, for accounting purposes. They don't count the value of your asset, the car, it's just nominal savings. And, uh, and so that, and that's consistent with the numbers we're seeing. So we're seeing, you know, so you have to look, I can't tell you who's going to win or lose ahead of time. I can only guess, but now I've got a year to look back and I see the economy booming and I see jobs booming and I see unemployment at 50 year low. And it's like, I think the winners are winning. <laughs> I think there's more winners than losers here. Now I can see housing prices stop going up. They're pretty flat year over year, but man, they had spiked up something serious and now they've kind of flattened up. And so there are losers there and uh, mortgage bankers, maybe their refinancings have gone. There's a few losers there, but look at the macro numbers. Looks like the winners are winning. So I go to the data to support the narrative. We need a narrative that's consistent with the data. What's the mainstream narrative that's consistent? They don't have one. They're saying, oh, there's a four-year lag for these rates to kick in. There's a two-year lag. In Japan, after 30 years, it was like, we just need a little more time for these low rates to kick in and we'll, we'll meet our inflation targets. But all they can say is the lag is longer than we thought. They don't have a narrative to fit what they're saying. And it, as Paul Krugman pointed out, it's in the new Keynesian model. It's, it's a pillar of that model that if the debt deficit, uh, the debt to GDP gets high enough, there is a point where raising rates is inflationary because you're suddenly pumping out all this interest. Now, if we had a very low public debt, the rate increase would not increase the income for the economy because the government wouldn't be paying interest on anything, you know, if it was zero. But when it's high, it, it does. Now, is that an argument against public debt? Absolutely not. It's an argument against raising rates to fight inflation. It's, it's not an argument against public debt. It's an argument against rate hikes. So the same economists who were screaming this two and three years ago have been absolutely silent. You have not seen a single analyst talk about this economy in terms of fiscal balance is seven or eight percent deficit. That's driving the economy. They used to say that. But they don't want to say it now for some reason, or they just don't see it. I don't know. I don't know if it's intellectual dishonesty or they just fail to see it. You know, so Japan um, is one that has been talked about as an experimenter with some of the the, yeah. the modern monetary theory and 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 sort of the the. And, and an extension of the, the the Fed buying all the bonds, Bank of Japan has bought most of the bonds. It hasn't really yeah. done anything to the currency, although last year, no. major differences with the currency. No. Do, do you think they just have, if they wanted to actually stimulate inflation, they should be raising rates now, start paying more interest on all their debt, or is their situation so unique? They have one of the highest debt to GDP everywhere. Yeah. yeah, if they did that, it would stimulate the economy and add to inflation, but it's the most obscenely regressive way to do it, what we're doing and what that would be. So when you raise rates, you're increasing deficit spending. And where, who are you spending the money on? Who's it going to? It's only going to people with money who already have money in proportion to how much they already have. What more obscenely regressive, you know, trickle down <laughs> method of trying to support the economy is there? That's, that's like the extreme trickle down and it's done by a small group of people at the Fed who have unilaterally decided, and it's serious, you know, 4% GDP, we're gonna pay out an extra trillion dollars of interest to people who already have money in proportion to how much they already have to fight inflation. Now, what kind of like, you know, if they said it that way, which is what it's operationally actually doing and nothing more, nothing less, operationally, that's all that's happening. When they raise rates, they pay out more money to people who already have money in proportion to how much they have. That's the policy. And that is supposed to fight inflation. You'd think that would 
bring up some kind of debate as to whether that's a good idea or not, right? But there's not even any discussion of that. And it's done by a small group of people. And they have the full support of Democrats, Republicans. In fact, they get criticized for not having done it sooner and not, you know, they got to go full Volcker and raise rates another 500 basis points immediately. Uh, get ahead of the curve. Give people who already have money more money, to, you know, to fight inflation. Well, it isn't going to work because the debt's so high right now, paying out so much to just absolutely flooding the economy with dollars already. Well, you know, you, you talked about the taxes is one of the ways to regulate this issue. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I wonder if you had a thought on with all the inflation in the system today, yeah. what should we be doing with tax policy in your view? Yeah. How much more should taxes? Can we, in a world where you just use yeah. taxes, could we get to a political yeah. scenario where people would be able to willing to move taxes up and down to address these type of issues? Okay, so you could do a, you know, fiscal adjustment. A spending cut or a tax increase would slow down aggregate demand if you have a demand problem. Okay. And so uh, if you have a demand problem and if it's caused by demand, I'm not going to argue whether we have one right this second. I'll do that a little later. Personally, I would, by cutting rates to zero, okay, that's a trillion dollar spending cut and scored over the next 10 years with the projected increase is probably a $15 trillion cut in public spending and the size of the public debt as the CBO would measure, although dynamically it won't work out that way. But um, And so if, if you're a deficit hawk and you're a conservative and you think we need to make a fiscal adjustment to slow this overheating economy down, the obvious thing is to stop paying out all this money, right? If you want to get out of a hole, stop digging, right? There's not one person even looking in that direction. If anything, they're saying, we need to pay another trillion out, get raised to 10%, which will make it 2 trillion. And then we have to raise taxes to pay for that payment to people who already have money so that we can fight inflation that's caused by the money we're giving them. I mean, it's hard for me to come up with a narrative that's rational here or that you know, makes any sense, but, but that's where we are. And I'm 74 years old this year. I've been in this markets over 50 something years. I've never seen anything <laughs> this bad. Now, I, I, can't, I shouldn't say that because I was in Argentina in April, met at the central bank. They had rates at like 35% because inflation was at 30. And they wanted to talk about it. And it was the same thing. The interest rates were flooding the market with pesos because of the size of the debt and the size of the interest. 20% of GDP going into peso payments that were just getting sold for dollars in the FX markets, and driving down the currency and causing imported prices to go up. So they causing inflation to go up. So they raised rates some more. And the head of the central bank said, uh, well, first of all, you don't have to introduce yourself. I've been following you for 10 years. And I pretty much agree with what you're saying. And his analysts there agreed with me. And he had mainstream models, just like the one I told you from Paul Krugman saying the same thing. They said, but you know, we can't do anything about this. And we're, we're not, we're not going to change policy. We've got an IMF thing we're living under and whatnot. And since I left, Inflation goes to 40, so rates go to 45. Inflation goes to 50, so rates go to 55. Inflation goes to 60, rates. They're at like 75% or 85% you know, rates right now. Yeah, and, and, and so how far behind them are we? So do you, do you think we now have a inflationary what problem in that sense of it's going to be that spiral? Like, would you be yeah. doing stuff to lower spending way more given the, the high inflation that we've had in the system and this view that rates are causing even more inflation? I Look, inflation, as we report it, which is consumer price index, was driven by the COVID issues and by the price of oil. Went up to 120 with the war, the Saudis were raising price, working with the Russians. And that peaked in July. Now, the Fed traced the excess demand problem to about 0.5% of GDP. You know, the researchers I've known are pretty good. So I, I, I'll take that, maybe 0.4, 0.5. So we did have some excess demand. But since then, the rate hike started before that. Uh, oil's reverted back down to 75-ish. All the commodities have come back down. We now have this, we've had a big deflationary impulse. We saw CPI go sideways, almost flat for several months. And now it's being supported by the strong economy and by the interest rates, which affect forward pricing, which we haven't even begun to discuss yet. But it's a, it's a you know, a strong factor in there. And um, 
the cost, interest rates affect the cost of doing business, which affect prices. So we've got, I think the entire inflation problem since July has come on the rate side. And so my first move as proposal would be to cut rates to zero. It's a trillion dollar spending cut. It'd be a major shock to the economy to lose all that interest, deflationary shock. It might be too much. It might require additional tax cuts or additional spending increases to stabilize things. I don't know, but that's that would be my first cut right there. And I'm categorically against the regressive um, uh, nature of this interest rate thing. And, you know, and for we, our stock guy is not your Jeremy Siegel, but it, you know, interest payments are like a stock dividend or a stock split. You're just paying all the shareholders, all the people that already have dollars, more dollars to, in proportion to how much they already have. So, you know, a five percent rate is like a five percent stock dividend or stock split. We're just giving them more. Well, obviously, that's highly problematic with reflect to the value of that stock or anything else, right? To just give give a hundred percent stock dividend out. What happens to the price? What happens to the value? So it's pretty obvious what's going on to it. it should be to a stock stock type of guy. Uh, and, and then I take another look at it. Now, the other interesting thing is going to Medicare for all, eliminating um, the private insurance industry, lowers uh, administrative costs. And purely on that basis, it creates about 5 million people, newly unemployed people who should not be working because all they're doing is digging holes and filling it in. They're working in an industry that doesn't need to be there, like the horse and buggy industry. And that would be a also a severe deflationary shock to the economy. So the two, interestingly enough, the two highly deflationary things we could do right now, the deflationary shocks would be to cut rates to zero and to give free Medicare for all to the population, and uh, which would also be an enormous advantage to a real cost of living, particularly for lower income people. Not a real cost, a real standard of living. I can't believe I said that. It would um, lower the real cost of living. It would be a, a big boost to the real standard of living to uh, lower income groups, particularly because high income groups already have all the medical they want. And um, they're just enormous advantages. But in the context of this conversation, it's, an, it's a very large deflationary shock. So between those two, uh, the very popular first steps forward, uh, but I don't see any uh, understanding that that kind of a combination is the immediate deflationary shock that would put this inflation to bed for a long time. If rates went the other way now, and you get, you're, yeah. you're sort of giving free money to people who to refinance even lower, and it not it the same issue of, hey, now your housing prices are going to go way up if you had a mortgage. You're, you know, the, you're going to give businesses who had loans ability to refinance much, much lower. Isn't there an, a, a, an equal offsetting benefit to those people as well? Well, that's a narrative for sure. And that narrative held in Japan for a long time. And Basil Moore, who I knew, an economist, used to say to me back in the early 2000s, he says, why aren't people borrowing like crazy on Japan? They got the zero rate policy, mortgages are three and a half percent. And, you know, I, I explained it, you know, the way I'm going to explain it to you. I say, Basil, I said, look, number one, they're not. And of course, after 30 years, it still wasn't happening. And when the bank was asked about it, they say, we just need a little more time. And when... When we had that big rate cut uh, after by Chairman Bernanke, rates went to zero for a long time. We didn't see that happening. We did not see it happening. We've seen the big a burst in credit growth after rates went up. When we were zero rates, they weren't around. And in the 80s, my partner and I, Cliff Feiner, used to laugh about it. We say, look, it's easy to predict M2 back then. Just look at the interest rate. With low rates, M2 is low. You know, if interest rates are four, M2 is going to be about four. If interest rates go to six, M2 goes to six. It tracks the other way around. So the data tells tells me what you're saying is that narrative is not a current hmm. narrative. So again, you got to look at the winners and the losers. Again, look at yourself going into the bank for a loan. You're the economy. You say, hey, I want to borrow for a house. Uh, rates are down. My mortgage rates are down to three and a half percent. Policy rate zero. You're going to make a nice spread. He says, yeah, but your income's just dropped a trillion dollars a year. It's going the wrong direction. We're going we're gonna to hold off. Right? So you wind up, the income drop overwhelms the, the, the uh, credit um, enhancement from the lower rate. So the credit detriment from the lower interest you know, dominates. So again, the interest uh, side is large enough to dominate a trillion dollar interest cut 
is a trillion dollar cut in income to the economy at all kinds of levels. You know, if you're Apple computer and you got two and a half, $250 billion in cash, so, you know, your interest, in, the drop in your interest income is enormous. Okay. And so, you know, that's how it works. It's a good conversation. We're running out of time, um, actually. Okay. Um, in, in sort of closing thoughts, anything we haven't covered for just to summarize your views of, of where we are and and the type of policies you'd like to see, any closing thoughts? Yeah, we, we, we don't have another hour, so we haven't covered the idea that it's not just fiscal spending, it's real fiscal spending. People's savings desires are based on the real value of their savings. And I'll just very quickly to what I'm talking about, but we can't get any further. Again, if Apple Computer has 250 billion dollars in the bank and suddenly prices double well that 250 billion is only half of what it was in real terms and now they there's a money shortage to, to talk very casually and they need to increase their balances by 250 billion and that's true of anybody going shopping if you used to be able to go shopping with 200 in your pocket to buy groceries and prices double now you need 400 in your pocket so increase in prices which is casually called inflation creates a money shortage which can cause a contraction in the economy, the public debt of uh, 25 trillion held by the public. If you get a 20% increase in prices, a 10 20% increase in prices, there's now it's now five trillion less in real terms what it can buy, and now you can get a very big contraction in the economy because you've got a sh shrinkage in the real value of the public debt, which requires an increase in deficit spending larger than that to sustain it. And that's what caused the crash of 79. The high inflation of 12% caused the, let's call it the net money supply in the economy to shrink in terms of its spending power by 12%, where the government deficit was only 6%. So we had a real collapse of 6% in, in wealth, nominal wealth, real nominal wealth, which caused a severe contraction in the economy. So it wasn't the interest rate effects, winners and losers. It was a big loser of the net financial assets in the economy contracting. So I'll close by opening up a whole new can of worms for you that we can talk about another time. We'd love to do it. I think we're actually planning on Vince Reinhardt coming on in later oh. in, in April. So maybe we'll try to link you guys yeah. up. Uh, but this yeah, has good, been good. a fantastic conversation with Warren yeah. Mosler. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by Warren School. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.